Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington. Hi, Seattle. KODX. KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, CA, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but Brad and Desi have time off. You have me. I'm Angie Cuero sitting in for you today. And once again on our next show, I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. I'll tell you, it is scary around here right now. I live a full four hours south of the fire in Redding, one of a couple or three blazes in California right now. And clear down here, four hours away, the sky is hazy, the gunk in the air catches in your throat. I woke up today, in fact, thinking that I had a cold. But no, it's the fire stuff in the air. And the pictures out of Northern California are absolutely apocalyptic. It's hellfire. It's actually jumped the Sacramento River. This is the car fire has jumped the Sacramento River. That's not a small jump. And as I speak now, two people are already dead, one firefighter, one bulldozer operator, Houses are blazing to the ground. I see this happening, and I want to smack every industry-funded or just plain ignorant climate denier and legislator full in the face. People are dying. Lives are being ruined right now, right this very moment, by the dollar signs in those people's eyes. This is on you, guys. In a few minutes, we're going to have a conversation with wildfire expert Gary Ferguson, but we check out some other headlines first. Wouldn't it be amazing if a Trump, any Trump, celebrated ostensibly good news without kicking somebody else in the teeth? With a lie, no less? So the economy has grown just over 4% in the last quarter. The Trump in the White House did promise that market growth would pay for his tax cut package. Let's put aside the fact that his any economist will tell you, and as plenty of economists told us during the Obama years, market growth can only be tangentially and inconclusively tied to whoever's in office at the moment. Really. So let's just put that aside. Mini Trump, Trump Jr., promptly tweeted out, just because Obama never broke 2% doesn't mean someone with great policies can't. Let's keep this going. For God's sake. What, what about pretending just for a moment that if you really think this is good news that benefits all Americans, hold that thought for just a moment, by the way. How about just pretending you're happy for everybody? What sociopathy runs genetically from daddy Trump to baby Trump that dictates that defecation on someone else has to be incorporated into every single utterance or tweet? Okay, let's break the rest of his tweet down, shall we? Obama never broke 2%. Uh, well, actually, the markets under Obama broke 2% in multiple quarters, including 
third quarter of 2014 at 5.2%? Doesn't matter. When you have spent years inoculating your troops against facts, they're not going to notice that not only are you wrong, you are spectacularly wrong. Then there's the issue of who really gets the goodies from the tax cuts and the market growth. Check this out from The Guardian UK. Quote, it's still too early to gauge the ultimate impact of tax cuts, but there are worrying signs that the package meant to spur investment and hiring has instead gone straight into the pockets of investors. Economists warn the growth spurt may be unsustainable. The evidence so far is the benefits of the mini-boom have disproportionately gone to the wealthiest Americans. The last time the economy expanded at a comparable pace was in 2014, Mm -hmm. when growth hit 5.2% in the third quarter. Now, the latter part of Junior's tweet, let's keep this going. Okay, it's pretty much a given that Trump will continue efforts to line the pockets of the rich, but back to The Guardian for this, it's still too early to gauge the ultimate impact of the tax cuts. There are worrying signs that the package meant to spur investment and hiring has gone straight into the pockets of investors. In May, American companies announced a record $201 billion in stock buybacks where companies buy their own shares in order to boost the share price. S&P 500 companies are set to repurchase as much as $800 billion in stock this year, a new record. But the majority of the benefit of those buybacks will go to the richest Americans. In the meantime, wage growth has continued lackluster, continued unabated since the end of the recession, and so far has been unaffected by the Trump presidency. Bottom line in the article is summed up by Josh Bivens of the Economic Policy Institute. He points out tax cuts have provided a bit of stimulus, particularly for people who own a lot of stock and are paying less. But low wages are still the biggest puzzle in this economy. Not the people Trump and Trump Jr. care about. So who cares? Also, genetic is this whole conducting the business of the people in 280 characters or fewer on Twitter. That is where you can follow most of the bickering over whether Big Trump knew about Little Trump's 2016 meetings with Russians to get the dirt on Hillary Clinton and torque the election. I'm not even going to quote the tweets from the White House. Insert misplaced capitals, the words witch hunt, crooked Hillary, collusion, fake news here, and you get the gist. Michael Cohen, though as reported by both CNN and NBC, says, hmm, Big Trump did know, and even more, approved the meetings himself. Excellent piece from Charlie Pierce at Esquire on all this. It's called, If Cohen is Telling the Truth, That Ought to Be the Ball Game." A bit of that. He says, we stand as a self-governing republic at a stark, unclouded moment. Either you believe the president of the United States is utterly illegitimate, having conspired with a hostile power to gain the office he now holds, and that every act he has taken in that office, up to and including swearing the oath of office, is equally illegitimate, or you do not. It is now a binary, he says. If Cohen is willing to testify to that effect, then the president, asterisk, conspired with the regime of Vladimir Putin in order to gain control over the executive branch of government in this country, which not only includes the military, but the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus as well. 
He goes on to draw connections here between now and the era of Watergate. Check that out. Charles Pierce in Esquire. Facebook is eternally in the news. Yesterday was, uh, this one's going to go down in history, an incredible walloping in the stock market, a 19% drop, actually between 19 and 20, if you look at the small print, $120 billion in shareholder wealth up in smoke. Now, it wasn't just the lukewarm second quarter report that Facebook put out. It was the warning to essentially expect more of the same Facebook's hand is finally being forced to clean up security and privacy issues, and that means a cut in profits. Facebook's press continues to suck, too. They have just taken it in the shorts over Alex Jones, making shooting motions at an imaginary Robert Mueller on screen, and the continued insistence that Sandy Hook was faked more on that later. They're in the news having suspended Jones, but read the fine print again. That is not the InfoWars channel that has been suspended. It's his personal account. InfoWars channel is still up and running. And there's more coming on on Facebook later this hour, so I don't want to make it entirely the bash Facebook hour. So we have a lot more to hear about as well, including those wildfires in California. A report on what's the latest going on with Repro Justice I do want to share some good news with you, okay? I mean, what the heck? There are a couple good news stories in the news, and I'll bring you one later. Right now, I'll bring you this one. A jury who saw through the idiocy in Georgia. There's a guy who was accused of having medicinal marijuana. He faced a felony charge of growing marijuana for his own personal medicinal use. This was reported in Raw Story. His name is Giovanni McCoy. And he was caught with nearly a pound of marijuana. And he told the police, yep, it's mine. It's my medicine. Now, the jurors heard all this. And what did they do? They let him go. It was not that they let him go because they didn't think it was his. They didn't let him go because he denied the charges. He owned it. He said, yeah, that's mine. That's my medicine. And, uh... What did the juror have to say, jurors have to say about that? They told the Atlantic Constitution, quote, he was believable. He wasn't trying to make money. He had it to ease his health. A juror said, a lot of us said, he wasn't bothering anybody. Finally, juror Brian Lloyd suggested, sometimes good things happen to good people. Sanity in our judicial system. More good news coming up in a few moments. I'm Angie Curl. Stick around. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Claro. Talked earlier about the wildfires that we're seeing. Well, on my side of the planet, we're seeing them here in Northern California. Yosemite is shut down to an extent never seen in its history, and we're seeing way too close to home the fires up in Redding, California, with destroyed homes. Unfortunately, at last report, two fatalities. One of the important things to, to understand about this is this is fire 
in a character and style that we not only haven't seen before up until now, but that we'd better get used to. A sad thing to say, but Gary Ferguson has made a living out of studying this. Uh, I spoke to him in an earlier program that I will link from the website on indeepradio.com. Gary, it's really good to have you back. Tell me about, as you watch with your practiced eye, as you watch the nature of these fires evolving in at Yosemite and in Redding, what characteristics are you seeing that, that alarm you and tell you that these do, in fact, fit the pattern of climate-impacted fire? Well, first of all, they're, they're heartbreaking, and uh, my, my great best wishes and sympathies go out to those who are, are struggling against these just uh, terrific forces of, uh, of nature. They do, as you suggest, fit uh, an emerging pattern, uh, so-called megafires, which used to be actually quite rare even 20 or 30 years ago. And since about 2000, we've had uh, over a dozen years with at least a dozen megafires. And those are defined by fires of over 100,000 acres. They're burning hotter. They're burning longer. And of course, they're uh, threatening more structures and, and more lives, both of residents and firefighters. A couple things are going on. Um, one is we're reaping the harvest of a set of well-intentioned but bad decisions in mid, uh, early to mid-20th century where we really had decided that fire was, was bad, was our enemy, and we would put fire out wherever it happened. Uh, and in the American West, what we really did was shut down a force of nature that's extremely important to get rid of the, the fuel load, if you will, that, that accumulates on in arid uh, forests. So by eliminating those, that fuel load just continued to build up. And after the big 1988 fires in Yellowstone, a lot of scientists and fire ecologists started thinking, wow, um, we've made a terrible mistake and we need to go in and try to do prescribed burns and, and other sorts of things to reduce this fuel load. But Angie, what's really um, making that particular problem far, far worse uh, is climate change. We've, we've got much drier forests than we have had in the past. The wind events because of energy in the atmosphere caused by uh, climate change uh, is, is much more severe, which, of course, is, is part of the problem going on in Reading right now to have those ferocious winds coming from all different directions. Some of them generated by the fire itself, but some of them, you know, again, generated by the fact that we, we live in a windier world right now. And this is also going on in, in Greece as we speak. So we, we've got the, those twin hits basically, of having an, uh, an excessive fuel load with a very rapidly changing climate that's drier. Uh, and uh, the fire seasons are much longer. They've grown by about 12 weeks since uh, 1975. Uh, and that's, that's, a profound, uh, that's a profound change. That is. That's a huge number. That's, that's a really daunting number. What, what are the fire teams learning about how to fight these? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I get the feeling that their firefighting methods can't evolve as quickly as the fire situations are. I think that's very true. You know, we, we think that if we throw enough um, firefighting technology and expertise, and, and we really do have a lot of, of, of both, uh, at a fire, uh, we should be able to stop it. But that's just not true. When the conditions reach a certain point, which they are in Reading right now, all the firefighters can do is basically help people stay safe, help evacuations happen, and then do some structure protection 
Now, one of the things that is emerging very rapidly in the West, our communities are, are really finally starting to get serious uh, with fire, I wouldn't say fireproofing, but making their, their neighborhoods and subdivisions more resistant to wildfire when it comes through. Most houses tend to burn not from a wall of flames, although there certainly are fires that do that, but from embers uh, rising from the fire maybe a mile or two away and then landing on the roof or in the yard beside the house. So there are some very simple things that people can do to kind of fire protect their homes. At this point, only about 3% of 20,000 communities that are in this kind of what's called a wildland urban interface where there's a high chance of wildfire, only about 3% of the communities have taken those steps. But I think because of what we're seeing, uh, a lot more communities will be embracing those measures. And that, that will help some. That will help some. The firefighters are able to get a better sense right now because of technology of where the winds are coming from uh, down to individual drainages, what might be going on in individual drainages, fuel moisture loads. They're, they're kept up to speed almost instantaneously from these uh, various satellite assists that they've got going on. So they know what's going on, but knowing what's going on, and stopping it are two different things. Mostly what the firefighters are able to do in a fire situation like going on in Reading is to keep themselves safe. And that's that's no small thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, one of the reasons I thought of you this morning, I went outside and the air here in the San Francisco Bay Area is, is hazy because of what's happening up north of us. And it, it seemed almost bizarre to be doing something as mundane as watering my tomatoes. But doing what you have recommended, I mean, I looked at the outside of my house and it's like, look, there are dead cedar branches right against the base of the house. There's dead ivy over in the arbor. All of this needs to be dealt with. So... I appreciate you're putting that yes, out there. It, yes. it, it's overwhelming in its size, but there is stuff that individual people and individual neighborhoods can do. Yes, yes, and you just suggested a great one is, is clear a perimeter of 8 to 10 feet around the house where there is nothing burnable. Make sure your gutters are clean and not full of dried leaves and uh, pine needles. Um, it's actually quite uh, smart to put a fine screen mesh over vent uh, openings in the attic uh, or crawl spaces because embers can actually get sucked in to the house. If you've got a, a tree that's 30 or 40 feet away that has shrubbery and smaller trees under it, what those smaller uh, plants can do is serve as a ladder to allow a fire that did come through to climb up into the tree itself And, of course, that's a bigger flame, uh, all the more potential to send embers into the house. So cleaning up that under uh, story, if you will, under your bigger trees is another thing that people can do. So there are things, and they don't sound like they're all that remarkable, but they make a tremendous difference. There have been fires um, where those subdivisions that have put those sorts of measures into place, uh, out of 65 or 70 homes, maybe they lose Uh, three or four compared to a subdivision right next door that did nothing and they're losing 62, 63 homes out of 70 or 75. So it just makes a phenomenal difference. Uh, Gary Ferguson's book is Land on Fire, The New Reality of Wildfire and the Rest. Gary, it feels odd to say it about an important book that has some some grim news, but some encouragement as well. It is, it's, in fact, a very beautiful book. The photography, you know, makes it well worthwhile as well. And I know you kind of crammed me in here into your schedule, and I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, this is a kind of a sobering year for everyone uh, in California, Angie. I, I believe that there, we're still on track in that, in that area to have a fire 
season lasts every month of the year. So 2018, if that's true, and it looks like it will be, it'll be the first year in history where there's been a fire danger, a fire risk every single month of the year. And that is a solid pointer to climate change. And we really need to get get awfully serious about what we do in the future to try to moderate the effects of, of uh, the environment warming and drying. Gary, so much important information. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Angie. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Gary Ferguson, author of Land on Fire. You can hear a full-hour interview with him on my show's website, indeepradio.com. It can be overwhelming, all the rights that are threatening to slip away under the reign of Trump. I remind myself, maybe it'll help you to do the same thing, that for every sector that's in danger, there is at least one group working to document the progress and to fight back. Which brings us to rewire.news, unfailingly reliable tracking the threats to women's reproductive rights, also known as health care. Jody Jacobson is the editor-in-chief of rewire.news, the right person to turn to for an update on all those battlefronts. Jody, good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. You know, one thing I'm really reluctant is to categorize Rewire as something that focuses only on repro justice. I know that that is critical. I know that that's an essential part of its mission, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But for people who aren't familiar, I just want to emphasize that that is there and so much more is there as well. So before we characterize it as something that only if you care about women's rights and only if you care about abortion freedoms, there's a lot more going on the site there. But that is what I had. Yeah, well, I think it's important. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's important to note that that reproductive justice, by by very definition, encompasses many things that you would not necessarily automatically assume because it it's an intersection with environmental justice, immigrant justice, economic justice, the whole idea being that you know, you really can't exercise your rights or attain reproductive justice if you are not able to decide when and whether to have a child, do so safely and on your own terms, live in an environment in which you can raise your child um, to be healthy without environmental pollution, with access to education. So it really is a somewhat encompassing phrase, and we do emphasize the justice piece of reproductive justice. I'm glad you clarified that. That's that's good to hear. In fact, there's a, there's something up on your front page right now that Trump's abortion gag rule is state violence. Um, you know, first I want to talk about the fact that, I mean, I'm in my 50s now. We've been talking about gag rules for decades. And I know that you can't possibly track all of the judicial rulings between now and then. But where do we stand in terms of the freedoms to say doctors with the intimacy of the office with their patient slash client, they are free to say what they want. They are free to disseminate information about a woman and her body and her choices. And why does this keep coming up? Well, I think one of the um, ways in which the anti-choice movement, which is really, you know, one and the same with the right-wing movement, um, has decided it can attack women's ability to get abortions is to try a couple of things, many, many different things. But there are, there are a few things that sort of focus on the locus between the doctor and the patient. One of them is that if you force a woman or a person in need of, a, of a, an abortion or any kind of health care to have to get, quote unquote, counseling, that's not necessary, and then wait until after a certain period after that counseling 
to get your services, then you're forcing a relationship between the doctor and the patient that um, makes the getting of an abortion, the obtaining of an abortion, that much more difficult. So, you know, we have things like 24 hours, 36 hours, 72 hour waiting periods that legislatures have passed. And their idea is, well, if we make women go um, to the doctor or the clinic, get counseled, and then have to wait 24 to 72 hours before they can actually get an abortion, we will change their minds because obviously they must not know what they want. And, you know, they'll change their minds because they've gotten this kind of counseling. When, in fact, all the studies show that that's not true. It does show, those studies do show that women don't change their minds, but the length of time it takes them to get an abortion is, in fact, dramatically increased well beyond the so-called waiting period. So if a woman has to have counseling and can't get back for 48 hours because of the law in order to obtain an abortion, what really happens is often more like two or three weeks because she's got to get more time off work. She may have to travel long distances from one part of the state to another where there's a clinic, et cetera. So the waiting periods and the counseling piece go together and interfere in the doctor-patient relationship as a way of both trying to deter women from getting abortions and trying to shame women. Then there's the, you know, sort of um, medically, uh, the, the medically sort of malpractice of forcing doctors to tell women things that are not true, mm-hmm. like abortion will ca- cause breast cancer or it will make you, you know, have, um, uh, it, it will cause psychological problems and all manner of things that are literally scripts. Well, in fact, I want to, Jody. I want to pick up on. I want to pick up on that latter point because there's a persistent myth that for women who have abortions, eventually they will have a come to Jesus moment, religious or not, and suddenly realize that they've done something devastating. Or even if they don't have that, they will have a residual depression or sense of loss that goes on and on. In fact, abortion for many women is a matter of fact decision that life is necessarily better off without continuing a pregnancy to term, and they don't have psychological damage, they don't have psychological crises, but that refuses to die. Yeah, it does refuse to die, and part of the reason it refuses to die is that we live in a universe in which, um, by design of certain groups, we no longer adhere to facts, but rather to people's opinions or feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... You know, uh, so, for example, the, the, the issue that you've pinpointed, there's tons of study, there are tons of studies now, um, social science research, economic research, that show that um, women who get abortions do not have any, um, any more, uh, you know, psychological problems than anyone else. In fact, women denied abortion care are more likely to have the problems that anti-choicers attribute to abortions than are women that have abortions because women that are having an abortion they've chosen to have are taking control of their lives by deciding I can't afford this child or I can't afford another child or I want to go to school or what have you. So there's a big lie out there that abortion causes those problems and it's a myth that you know, because we're assaulted constantly with anti-choice mythology and because so many legislators have built upon that with laws, people tend to believe it. You know, by contrast, what the studies actually show is that denial of abortion care is not only 
problematic psychologically because it disempowers women, it interrupts their own life plans and that of their families, but also it makes them poorer, it makes them less able to get out of, um, in the cases where this is relevant, less able to leave a, a violent relationship, those kinds of things. So it has really a lot of um, very difficult uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about what happened in California where you have these standalone or anti-choice affiliated clinics that advertise themselves as offering counseling for women, but they offer a, a severely edited version of counseling? They don't talk about the fact that abortion is a right. They don't talk about the fact that it may, in fact, be the best choice in the situation. And the sad business is that California recently lost a ruling that said you have to explain all the options. If you're going to posit yourself as a counseling service, you can't edit what you're saying based on whatever your particular motivations might be. And California lost, unfortunately, on that one. Is is that issue still alive in the courts anywhere else? Is there any forward progress being made on, on trying to make those clinics either shut down or make a true representation on everything that's available to the woman? Well, right now, because of the Supreme Court decision, it's a little bit more difficult to have that happen. And I I think probably people are exploring other means of holding these clinics accountable. The problem is that they're not really clinics, right? As I said to someone the other day, if I were going to um, have a dental checkup and I arrived somewhere and they said, hey, we're happy to serve you, but we don't do dental checkups. We're dentists, but we don't do dental checkups. Well, there would be something awry, you know, because they've advertised themselves as a dentist, but they don't actually do dentistry. And that's the case of, you know, these these fake pregnancy centers is that they don't really offer services that women are seeking, whether they're seeking um, correct information about a pregnancy or they're seeking abortion care. They not only don't offer those things, they sometimes completely mislead a woman. So rather um, than telling a woman accurately who's come there, well, you're eight weeks pregnant, they might say, well, you're actually 14 weeks pregnant, and therefore you're too late to get an abortion. And they literally will lie to women, which is about the most disempowering thing you can do. And, I, you know, I'm at a loss personally, but I think that It's emblematic of the ways in which we've been trained to think about abortion care and women's health that, again, they are a matter up for debate rather than based on scientific relevance. Because I can't see a case going to the Supreme Court where someone who's pretending to be a heart surgeon and then completely botches somebody's life gets out of – you know, being censured for that or, or losing a case on that. But when it comes to contraception, abortion, those kinds of things, it seems somehow to be okay in, in, in the court system for that to happen. And I don't think we've quite figured out the right ways to battle these things yet. You know, the thing that gets me about that is all anyone is asking for is honesty, all anyone is asking for is for honesty. these, yeah, honesty for the clinics to say we are an anti-abortion service. If you'd like to have 
discussions that include the possibility of ending your pregnancy, we're not the right venue for that. That's just honesty. That's not saying they have to close their doors. That's not questioning their professionalism or even their ethics. That's just saying truth and advertising. Yeah. I mean, I haven't examined this yet in, in great detail, but I suspect, and, and it's problematic, I suspect that because there's such a diversity of the way that we handle medical practices across states, you know, there are medical boards, there are licensing boards, um, there's county restrictions, there's state restrictions. We don't have a lot of consistency. And therefore, I think because of that lack of consistency, individual types of care, quote unquote care, in the case of um, fake pregnancy clinics, are not being subjected to the same sort of fundamental standard um, as others are being subjected to. And therefore, they're claiming that they're being discriminated against in some way. And I suspect ultimately, there's something that has to do with the ways in which we regulate medical care more broadly. And obviously, every kind of care, every kind of care requires a different set of regulations. But I mean, sort of at a very fundamental level, what we attribute as being medical care and how we give a seal of approval to that at the state level that that deprives those clinics of or fake clinics of some sort of seal of approval that that by definition means that they're not giving adequate care. Jody, before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question. There, there was a phenomena, and I think it was about a year ago, and it was an invitation to women to stand up and say, I, too, have had an abortion. And there was the effort to kind of normalize it, to say, you know, these are not evil women. These are not people who casually use abortion as birth control, which is one of the myths that's out there. It's just saying, hey, the person who had an abortion could be your sister. They could be your neighbor. They could be anybody. It is a woman who's making a medical choice. I really appreciated seeing that going on for a while. I wonder, Just this is just an impression. I know there's no research on this. Do you think that that had an effect in, in demystifying who has abortions and why, or at least normalizes the way people look at it a little bit? If which part had an effect in, in normalizing? Just, just that move to, to have women identify and stand up and say, I had an abortion. Do you think that had I a lasting effect? The, the storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. I mean, I think, I think it has. I think our time horizon for those things is, is very short. Yeah. And it requires a much larger, much longer-term effort to change public opinion when you've got so much money and so much other noise in the system against the sort of truth-telling of individuals. And, you know, there's also the part where you you have lawmakers that just don't care. For example, there's there was a case in South Dakota of a, of, a, of a colleague who had had a late abortion because of a severe anomaly of uh, actually she was carrying twins, very severe anomaly. Mm-hmm. And it was a devastating choice for her. Um, and she had to have a late abortion, this um, later abortion. This, this particular woman testified in the legislature against the law that they were considering. And they, they basically just outright dismissed her. And it really didn't matter to them that there was a person there with a real story and, you know, who might actually have died in the process. Wow. So I think it's, it's you have to sort of look at it from the vantage point of how we're treating immigrants and their children and see how 
absolutely soulless some of our politicians are and can be when they're driven by um, whatever in the moment they're being driven by, misogyny, patriarchy, white supremacy, you know. Or money, just plain money. Our power, all of those things. Yeah, yeah all of those things. Mm-hmm. Jody, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a while, and I'm glad to get you back on here. Thank you. You too. Thank you, Angie. Jody Jacobson. She Take is good care. You too. She's progressive but not predictable, according to her Twitter bio. She's editor-in-chief at Rewire.News. Uh, let's go overseas for this next story. TheRevelator.org has a story out about how dangerous it is, especially in Brazil and the Philippines, to be an environmental activist. Now, here in the States, environmental activism does put you up against very deep-pocketed financial interests, oil and gas companies, agribusiness developers. But on the whole, you're not going to lose your life protesting on behalf of the environment in America or taking other activist measures. You're probably going to live through it. The people who are trying to save wildlife by curbing the palm oil industry or working against water privatization overseas are, in fact, engaging in life-threatening work. There's a piece up right now at Revelator.org by the site's editor and the author of the ongoing Extinction Countdown column. He's John R. Platt. And here's a quick editorial note before you hear our interview. Kind of funny. As I was setting up the interview with him, I told him I was triple and double checking all the systems. And uh, yeah, right after I got off the phone with him, one of my systems crashed and ate my part of the conversation. (laughs) Anyway, it was retrievable. But for the sake of your ears, I want to warn you, it does sound a little bit off on my side. Lots of valuable info, though. So here's our conversation. John, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for inviting me. I don't know that everyone who's listening knows about The Revelator. So why don't you acquaint us there? Sure. We've been around about a year. We're a a news site covering environmental issues ranging from endangered species to climate change to public lands, clean water. And kind of like the broadcast, we try to cover stories that other people aren't talking about. Um, There's an awful lot of important environmental issues that slip through the cracks. And we considered our goal to try to fill those cracks and try to give people the context they need to make – make sense of these things. Mm-hmm. So we have we cover news, we have an investigation side, and we also cover ideas. We we run uh, essays and op-eds from a variety of people around the world. That latter part is one thing I'm glad to hear around the world. It's, it's understandable that so much of our news is America-centric. This is the kind of thing that goes missing. So I want to dive right into that and talk about what's a global witness data release that your article cites. One of the things that stood out to me is it merely trying to get a count of how dangerous and how many people are affected is very difficult. Uh, we're focusing on data that came out for 2017, and Global Witness originally said 197 people were murdered in 2017 who were doing activism, environmental activism. And then since then, the organization has come up with 10 more murders. I, I, I The original figure is horrible enough. What is it, to your knowledge, that goes into the difficulty in getting a count here and getting a complete picture? Well, first of all, it is all around the world, and a lot of it is in really remote places. And quite frankly, a lot of these crimes are covered up. Um, Either the the governments or corporations themselves are hiding their actions. Uh, A lot of cases, these crimes are committed by government security forces. Other times, people are just too intimidated to come to light, to make, make people aware of what's going on with them. And that's the whole other thing about this. this. Yeah, people are being murdered 
to stop their activism, but it's also a signal to everyone else, shut up or something's going to happen to you too. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, you start your article out with Hernan Bedoya, and this is a murder that occurred in 2017, and he was out there in one of the ongoing environmental battles, and that's trying to tackle the palm oil industry. Despite as much notice as has gone out about the palm oil industry and how many people in America have tried to get that word out there, I still think people don't understand palm oil is not only in just about every foodstuff in America, but it's a specific threat to very specific animals. The orangutans, for example, their lives are being impacted directly. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that, yeah, if people know about palm oil, they, they probably know that it's impacting the orangutan. But there's so many other wildlife species in Indonesia. But now palm oil is being grown all around the world, in Africa, in South America. So the same problems of deforestation and habitat loss and direct assaults and, and, and slayings of animals and people that we had in Indonesia is now happening on our, in our hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Your article goes into some of the intimidation that goes on. You've already mentioned that the murders themselves are, are intimidation by their very nature. What what other mechanisms are used to try to either shut down or intimidate the environmental activists? Sure. Well, sometimes it's direct assault. We've we've heard of cases where people are beaten or killed or, or cut or stabbed. At least one people, a couple of people have had their hands chopped off. There have been reported sexual assaults. People have been arrested um, or, you know, even just the threat of death. And one of the latest things is people are being um, they're being cyber bullied or cyber attacked, trying to get their data, trying to attack their systems. And then there are these nuisance lawsuits. Oh, you spoke up against us. We're going to throw a lawsuit against you and force you to spend all of your money and all of your time defending yourself against this lawsuit. And that's where the Goliath versus David comes in, because these are very (laughs) deep pocketed interests. They can keep you in court forever. They can. Uh, let's talk about this. <laughs> I had this feeling of the caped crusader riding in toward the end of the article. There's there's some encouragement that the Environmental Law Alliance worldwide is out there. Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, E-Law is a great organization based in Oregon, but they have uh, pieces of a puzzle all over the world. They, they bring in fellows from countries all over the world where people are working on, on these environmental issues. And they, they partner with attorneys all over the all over the place, and they have a number of tools in place. First of all, just the law is a great tool, but they they connect people with a number of other cyber tools or strategies or ways that they can protect their data, protect their identities, protect themselves, and and otherwise give them the the resources they need to stay safe. Mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John, you made yourself available on very short notice, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You can find this article that we cited. In fact, I'll link it at thebradblog.com. I'll link that to therevelator.org. The article is entitled Murder and Intimidation of Environmental Activists Hits Record Levels. John, take care, and thank you. Thank you. Coming up next on the broadcast, freedom from Facebook, a consummation devoutly to be wished. I'm Angie Carver. This is the broadcast. You don't own me. I'm not just one of y'all many it's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro. A couple different things that we're looking at this hour that are kind of getting lost in the news. And one is the continued assault 
on reproductive rights for women. Who else to talk to for a full roundup except who's with Jody Jacobson, who is the editor-in-chief of Rewire.News. As promised, I'm going to pick up here on Facebook. There is more than one move afoot to regulate the website. Some people aim to break it up. Some people go so far as to want to declare it a public utility. The Freedom from Facebook group, which is a project of open markets, has kept a tally of all the ways that Facebook has crossed the line. And that's from its memo that hit the news earlier this year, expressing essentially complete amorality when it comes to what news it will perpetuate, to Cambridge Analytica and onward beyond that. Now, let me put my bias out right here. I think Facebook could be awesome. I think it could do a great deal of service for the communities, as well as just being fun. And I really believe that at the same time, they could be profitable. I don't think one obviates the other. But this hands-off, dare I say, libertarian take on fake news and the damage it does, and they're bungling one opportunity after another to fix the problems, it, it makes it look like it has no part in their ambitions or plans to be a better citizen. Case in point. Right now, there are bereaved parents from Sandy Hook who have an article up at The Guardian addressing the Alex Joe material and others that paint the murder of children at Sandy Hook as a staged government hoax. And this has been going on since the day it happened. YouTube finally, finally pulled the plug on some Alex Jones videos. Facebook, as I mentioned earlier this hour, dragged its feet, but now they're doing a little something about it. But how much more pain are they okay with inflicting on others in the name of hands-off distribution of information? So we're going to check into Freedom from Facebook. It's a project of open markets. And for that, we bring on its executive director, Barry Lynn. Barry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So I got yet yeah, I'm on the uh, emailing list for Freedom from Facebook, and it directs to a number of important things today. One is a long list of everything that Facebook has done when they could have done just the opposite in protecting people's privacy, in trying to make sure the news that goes out is true, accurate, doesn't hurt people. Tell me about the position of Freedom from Facebook on all of this. Well, I mean, the basic idea is that uh, you know Facebook. It has become, as you said, Facebook is this terrific service. It's this terrific connector of people, you know, and, you know, the Internet itself is a terrific connector of people. That's what it was built to do. But Facebook sort of makes it even easier. It makes it, it just allows people, it gives you all these tools in which to keep track of people, track of information and, and, and tell people what's going on in your life. And, and, and that's all a good thing. And that's a very 21st century thing, and that's something that we want to make sure uh, sort of continues to exist for people. But as you mentioned, there's a bunch of problems with Facebook. One of them is their business model. Their business model relies on them basically uh, snooping on you, keeping track of you, trying to figure out what your secrets are, and then taking those secrets and then uh, using them to manipulate you through uh, to highly targeted advertising. That's how they make their money. Remember, it's like they almost every single dollar of revenue at the company comes from selling advertising. That's $40 billion last year. And uh, so their business model is, the you know, we think is the wrong business model for this particular technology. We like the technology. We don't like the business model. So 
what we stand for, what we think is that uh, should happen is that, uh, you know, regulators should come in and work with Facebook or, or, or force Facebook to change their business model while preserving Facebook so that uh, it's still there for all the people who want to use it and, you know, and, and, and continues to do all of the great things that we've, we've come to, to love. Uh, Let me push back on that, because what you'll hear, there are two fronts of response to that that we hear all the time. One is that what we're looking at as invasion of privacy is actually an amalgamation of data that doesn't mean that you personally, Barry Lynn, have your data out there on Facebook for all the advertisers to see. You're one tiny piece in a massive puzzle that really won't be traced back to you. And the second argument, I'll let you hit both of these. The second argument we hear is that this is why Facebook is free. This is why you can find the ant you never knew you had because it's free and the business model of advertising pays for you to be there and find your auntie. Yeah, you know, I mean, those are uh, those are both reasonable arguments. But um, the, the thing about the, the you know the, the problem that we see, there's a couple of uh, primary problems that we see uh, with Facebook. One is that as we ha- uh, you know we saw with Cambridge Analytica, they actually don't do a good job of keeping your privacy private. I mean, keeping your secrets private. You know, they they they're just you know their system is not. They did not build a a, a system that is secure, and that means that mm-hmm. you know uh, yeah they like theoretically the system is designed to ensure that your data, your information gets blended into other people's information, kind of like a security, like a securitized mortgage back in the day, if we remember what those were like, right? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but in actual fact. Uh, they just leave the door wide open and people get to look just right at your own information. Uh, people who, you know, uh, who are not even as trustworthy as the folks at Facebook. Uh, you know, so that's one of the problems too. The second, you know, is that uh, they, they have kind of left the back door open to people like, you know, Russian democracy hackers to people who are trying to, you know, uh, sort of stoke anger uh, among uh, Americans, set Americans fighting against each other, people of the same community fighting against each other because of race or whatever reasons. And it's like, and, you know, and again, it's like they're, they have not done a good job of closing the back door to ensure uh, that these sort of democracy hackers are kept out. And then the third thing, mm-hmm. and this is what I wrote about just yesterday in the in the Guardian, uh, is that uh, because they have this business model that relies on advertising, what they do day to day is they divert advertising that should go to trustworthy sources of journalism to the New York Times, to the Wall Street Journal, to the Guardian. And, and they take that uh, advertising and they divert it away from those trustworthy sources of journalism into their own pockets. We just saw this week the Daily News lay off half of its staff in New York, local reporters. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why did they have to do that? It was It's because Facebook and Google are diverting the advertising in their own pockets. So the problems are multiple with Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Uh, but uh, what we, uh, what we, what we have, you know, again, it's like we have simple tools that will allow us to fix the problem without getting rid of Facebook, without getting rid of Google, so we continue to enjoy the real benefits from this.
You know, I have to commend you on one of the lines that you used in that article in The Guardian. The citizens of the world's democracies face a choice. We can allow Google and Facebook to continue to strangle half our free press to death and turn the rest into cowed pets. I did think there was a certain lyricism to that. One of the things that we're up against is that the whole concept of monopoly has changed from the days that monopoly legislation was written and became law. And that was once upon a time... Monopolies focused on one product, be it you know, be it power, be it journalism, be it a food chain, whatever. And and our monopolies that we're seeing now, they're multifaceted. You don't say Amazon and say, you are the only mail order system in the world. They've got fingers in every pie. And I think isn't that part of the problem with trying to break Facebook up? Is that a they have so many fingers and so many pies, and b that's not what the law addresses. No, actually, I mean the law. Uh, we actually have laws on the books right now that allow us to fix Facebook and make it safe for everybody. You know? Really? And yeah. I mean, it's like uh, we have, you know, traditionally, part of it is just like people understanding what Facebook actually is. You know, it, Facebook is, uh, in many respects, it's like a 21st century version of AT&T, you know, the, the telephone mm-hmm. company. The, and in the 20th century, with AT&T, we had these laws. One of the laws was, you shall not, AT&T, you shall not listen in on the phone calls of the people who are using your uh, uh, your system. Two, you mm. shall not use that information, any information that you glean whatsoever about your customers to advertise anything to them. What does Facebook do? Facebook, you know, it connects people. It, it's like AT&T, mm. but with extra benefits, extra capabilities. Yet their business model is precisely listening in on your phone call and then selling you things, manipulating you to, to, to sell you things, Yet, you know, taking your information and using it to manipulate you. So it's like if we just go back and we just look at laws that are on the book that apply that we you know, apply to telecommunications firms, to the AT&T, we, we apply those exact same laws to uh, uh, Facebook. Most of the problem goes away. Now, you raise this issue of, you know, Facebook right now, they say it's it's free. You know, they have 150 million people, users in the United States. You know, if Mm. every one of those users paid, you know, three or five dollars a month, you know, it's you would end up with they would end up with almost as much revenue per year as they do now through their advertising model. And it, they would have a sufficient money to make sure that the system is the most, is the best, most you know, world-class system of communications in the 21st century. And they would do it without having to mine your data, to, to suck out your secrets from your mind and then use them to manipulate you. So it's like... You know, I'll, we, t- I'll tell you, I actually have kind of mixed feelings about that, and I'll tell you why. I don't think Facebook is necessary to a full and vibrant life. So let me just acknowledge that up front. But once you start putting a price on something that is so integrated into society, aren't you starting to get into the realm of, again, the digital haves and have-nots? You know, I mean, it's like if we, as a society, this is actually, that's a great question. The thing is, it's like, you know, but it's the same, like, cable, you know, it's like cable, mm-hmm. there's a price, and then, you know, uh, uh, then you, uh, certain communities may, you know, sort of work to provide uh, cable to people of lesser means. 
you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, electricity. Electricity has a price, it's, you know. And but then, in, you know, I know here in Washington there are various programs to ensure that poor people actually pay less for their electricity. Okay, mm-hmm. so if we actually say that, you know, that as a society that we want uh, people of lesser means to be able to access this system, then there's all kinds of ways that we can do that. And Facebook, I mean, you know, they could also, you know, as long as they're doing it in public, as long as we see why they're, how and why they're discriminating. If they say, you know, people under this level, all students get Facebook for free. All mm-hmm. uh, people over the age of 65 get Facebook for free. Uh, you know, as long as the discrimination is done by class and is done in public, uh, then you know, uh, you know, we can, as a society, we can say, hey, that that makes sense. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways to deal with all of these problems. But the key thing is, there's is we have to understand is that uh, there is never before in our society have we ever let any network monopoly, be it a railroad be it a telephone company, be it a telegraph company, be it the electrical company. We never, ever let any previous network monopoly manipulate us the way Google and Facebook do. And, and, because, and because we have all of these different regimes to regulate all of those previous network monopolies, what we have is a great body of tools that we can use when we set out to figure out how to make Facebook safe for Americans in the 21st century when we set out to figure out how to make Google safe for Americans in the 21st century. Before I let you go, I have one more question, and that's about what we've seen. Okay, I'm going to be biased here. What we've seen as some half-hearted efforts on behalf of the American government to take a look at what's happening with Facebook. I think any of us who took hope that part of Congress was going to have Jeff Zuckerberg there in person and answer their questions. Our our hopes were pretty quickly dashed as to how effective that was going to be, even in the moment, let alone long-term effect. So what do we see that indicates any hope that this is being taken seriously as an issue for the American people on behalf of our government? Yeah, actually, uh, we paid a lot of attention to the hearings, the Cambridge Analytica hearings on Capitol Hill in the House and the Senate back in April. Uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. we watched both of those hearings. We watched every question. We actually, some of our questions were asked by uh, members of the Senate, members of the House. And what we can tell you is that that's not at all the end of the story. The, the people and the, the members and their staffers, when they opened up that box and they saw what's inside Facebook, it terrified them. They are not by any means done as, as dysfunctional as the uh, uh, Congress has been in recent years. The one thing they are that both people from the, from the Republican side and the Democratic side agree on is the need to deal with Facebook and Google with fake news and this invasion of our privacy and this manipulation of our minds and this theft of the advertising dollars that should be going to trustworthy sources of journalism. Uh, there is bipartisan agreement about this, and these guys will, and these women, these men and women in Congress and the Senate, they will be back. I guarantee you that. I'm going to end on that hopeful note because we don't get too many of those these days. Barry Lynn, Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
And that's a wrap on the broadcast. Brad and Desi have enjoyed a day off so much that they're going to take another one. I'm Angie Kerr, and I will be back with you at that time. Until then, good luck, world. I can't stand this in-